Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Glad to be with you. We've got much to talk about today. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the story of Wounded Tiger. It's a stunning story about Pearl Harbor. And uh, written by T. Martin Bennett. Uh, he's he's uh, sending it out now. He's fishing for a uh, movie um, uh, interest, and I'm going to share with you some of the stories. It involves extraordinary conversions, and definitely edifying and worth hearing. It's it's in the midst of such hatred and war, uh, how you can see such, you might say, points of light. That's coming up. Also today, uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen joins us with our look at what's been going on uh, around the world. We, we know that uh, the jailed Nicaraguan bishop, Rolando Alvarez, is uh, now willing to leave Nicaragua, but unfortunately he's in uh, rapidly declining health. There's a number of other interesting stories from around the globe. Matthew will be joining us to share. Peggy Stanton will be with us to look at this Sunday's Gospel reading. It takes us to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where John the Baptist appears in the desert, preparing the way of the Lord and and issuing his call to repentance. We'll be uh, digging into that and how the Catechism deals with with this passage of Scripture. And it may surprise you to learn that the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, uh, one of the great American novels, was actually published in England and Canada before it was available in the United States. Uh, December 10th, 1884 was the day, but it didn't hit American stores until February of 1885, and uh, Mark Twain begins the novel with a warning. Uh, Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be persecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot. Nevertheless, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Huckman's world with Catholic eyes. We're going to be joined again by Luella D'Amico. She's joining us. And then uh, I have a few things to say, too, about this remarkable story of the wounded tiger. But first, let's get today's headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, December 7th. It's the Feast of St. Ambrose. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. The shooter who killed three people at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas on Wednesday was apparently a college professor. That man was armed with a pistol when he opened fire just before noon, and students scattered. NBC News' Jay Gray says the suspect was a 67-year-old career college professor who had unsuccessfully applied for a job at the school. The shooting started shortly before noon Wednesday on the fourth floor of the UNLV Business School building. In addition to those killed, one person was also critically injured. The gunman was killed by authorities. 
Israel's security cabinet is approving an increase in supplies in order to avoid humanitarian collapse in southern Gaza. This comes as Israel says its forces have encircled the home of the top Hamas leader, who is believed to be hiding underground. Today marks exactly two months since Hamas launched its October 7th attack against Israel. Today marks the 82nd anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. The attack by the Japanese military in Hawaii pushed the U.S. to enter World War II and declare war on Japan. Flags across the U.S. will be flown at half-staff today, and a commemoration ceremony will be held at Pearl Harbor National Memorial in Hawaii. And the richest Americans are richer than ever. New figures from the Federal Reserve show that the top 1% of earners in the U.S., own more wealth than all middle-class Americans combined. According to statistics, through the middle of this year, 26.5% of all household wealth belongs to those whose income puts them in the top 1%. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Carrie Byrne over at uh, Fox News uh, put together a lifestyle story that I came across earlier today and thought this is definitely worth sharing with you. Uh, it, it emerges from a book called Wounded Tiger. It's written by T. Martin Bennett, which tells the story of uh, Mitsuo Fuida, the Japanese pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. He eventually converts to Christianity, uh, and how this comes about is itself remarkable. It involves um, in stories, inspirational stories of love set by two Americans, uh, Jacob DeShazer and Peggy Koval. Uh, but let, let's go back to Mitsuo. He's one of the most notorious villains in American history. He's the one who says, Torah, 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 tiger, tiger, tiger. He led the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, 82 years ago today. In fact, he had been handpicked by Admiral Yamamoto to lead that surprise attack. He was a giant in the world of the Japanese military. Uh, just to remind you, 2,400 Americans were killed by uh, uh, Mitsuo Fuita and the 146 pilots uh, under his command. That's what it took, 146 pilots. It was a triumphant moment uh, for uh, Fuida. He had been indoctrinated uh, in the merciless samurai code. That code demanded hatred for and revenge upon its enemies. It's important to remember that Western uh, military conduct doesn't emphasize hatred and revenge upon enemies. Um, partially because the influence of Christianity throughout Western culture, even in terms of military thinking, uh, we approached combat in a different way. But after the war, um, Mitsuo embraced a new moral code. Uh, He actually began to adopt, uh, you might say, love thy enemy. And the story, again, is told in this uh, World War II tale, Wounded Tiger. But this has... God's fingerprints all over it. Uh, Eventually, Mitsuo's calling is not to be a samurai warrior. It's not to adopt a samurai court. It is not to kill people. He becomes an evangelist, 
called to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, this is this has got to be uh, one of those turnaround stories that uh, you, you come across uh, in the history of uh, Christianity. Um, and in fact, he ends up uh, learning to love the United States. His citizens, uh, his, excuse me, his children, becomes U.S. citizens. And uh, what what brought about the change in uh, Mitsuo's life? Well, uh, certain events that turned his his head around, and certain people that he met. An American prisoner, for one, and a girl that he actually never met but whose life had remarkable influence in him. The story is told again by T. Martin Bennett uh, in Franklin, Tennessee. He spent 18 years uncovering layer after layer of this story. And uh, Mitsuo has an, a number of chance encounters uh, after the war. And he comes across Jacob DeShazer, now, the Shazer was an airman on the Doolittle Raid on Tokyo of April 1942. Uh, again, Peggy Covell is another American who has influence on him. She, she grew up in Japan. She was a family of Christian teachers. But the Shazer underwent a spiritual awakening when he got his hands on a Bible. He spent 40 months of torture as a Japanese prisoner of war. And then he got his hands on scriptures. And uh, again, the scriptures began to reshape his understanding of reality. One of the first things he began doing after reading uh, the Gospels was to try and treat uh, the guards who tormented him with love. And they responded by treating uh, Jacob uh, as a brother. Now, Peggy uh, Koval, for her part, came back to the United States during the war. Remember, her parents were teachers in Christian schools in the Philippines. Uh, they were Parents were actually killed by Japanese soldiers in 1943. Uh, her response to the killing of her parents was to volunteer in a Utah hospital that specialized in treating Japanese prisoners of war. So here you have a, a woman whose parents were killed by Japanese soldiers, and she takes Jesus' command to love your enemies with literal seriousness. So she begins ministering to these Japanese prisoners of war in Utah. The prisoners came to call her, quote, an angel, because she was so kind. And one of the men she treated, uh, Katsuo Kanagasaki, was the engineer responsible for maintaining the aircraft of Mitsuo Fuida, the head of the Japanese pilots who he led the attack on Pearl Harbor. So, you know, <laughs> raised with that samurai uh, vengeance, uh, Mitsuo spent the war hating the United States, um, trying to establish his own stature. He wanted to be a rock star in the Japanese military. And, of course, leading the attack on Pearl Harbor was his moment. And he said, my duty was to annihilate the enemies of Japan and to establish order for the future, to show the imperial way. Um, as you know, the attack achieved complete surprise. U.S. Navy, the American people, you might say, asleep at the wheel of world history. And more than 900 Americans are still entombed uh, where they died in the hull of the USS Arizona 
Uh, I mean, that's the kind of horror that still sits there as a reminder. Um, it was uh, Mitsuo uh, Fuida himself who sent the celebratory message of victory, Torah, Torah, Torah. That went back to Japanese leaders while he was still circling uh, over Pearl Harbor. Torah means tiger in Japanese. And you may know that it became an Oscar-winning movie about the attack in 1970. Um but this story, called Wounded Tiger, again, it's referring to the life of a Mitsuo Fuida, uh, has never really been told before. And this is what happens. The attack, which was meant to show the superiority of Japanese culture, and the superiority of Japanese arms, and the superiority of Japanese military, turned out to be one of the greatest miscalculations in world history because by the end of the war, Mitsuo Fuida's homeland is a complete uh, ruin, you know. Uh, and so he, has, he begins asking, what, what happened? You know, he was at the top of his game. Uh, and then another providential moment came when on August 5th, he was in Hiroshima. Now, what happened one day after that? The hotel that he was living in on August 5th, and then he left, that hotel was vaporized the next day, August 6th. It was the first of the two atomic bombs that ultimately forced Japan to surrender. And then Mitsuo Fujita's life was further changed by, you might say, spiritual interventions. He heard Jacob DeShazer's story of loving his captors. Uh, now, Jacob, after the war, and people began to hear this story, he became something of a hero uh, because of the way he, in the West anyways, because of the way he came to love his enemies. And Mitsuo Fuida later becomes friends with DeShazer, who in fact lived in Japan for decades after the war. And Mitsuo was absolutely confounded. Remember, this is a guy who's formed by a samurai understanding of warfare. And the Christian uh, understanding of loving one's enemies is simply alien uh, to that worldview. And then what gets worse is Mitsuo Fuida finds his engineer, Kanagasaki, after the war, and he tells the story of being ministered to by the angel, Peggy Colville, whose parents had been killed during the war, but she had treated him and other Japanese soldiers with such dignity as prisoners that Kanagasaki was drawn to Christ. So this, this again, this lead pilot in the attack on Pearl Harbor, it, I mean, the Lord is hounding him. Uh, he began pursuing uh, the love, the source of love, that he found in the lives of Peggy Koval and Jacob DeShazer and got himself into, again, a, a spiritual journey, uh, which eventually leads him uh, to follow Christ. His stature in Japan was so great after the attack on Pearl Harbor that he was one of the few people to meet Emperor Hirohito. He, he could have had fame, he could have made a fortune, uh, even after the war. Instead, he converted to Christ and ended up 
living in poverty as an evangelist, telling the world what God had done for him, which was to save him from a life of hatred. It's a wonderful story. It's called Wounded Tiger. I have to say, I've not, I haven't laid my hands on the book yet. Just learned about this this morning, but thought, given you know the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, 82 years after the the slaughter, it was worth sharing with you. Uh, there's another uh, story, a Pearl Harbor story, that I thought might be worth sharing with you as well, and that is, um, on December 7th, 1941. Uh, among the many casualties of Pearl Harbor were 66 Catholic priests who had served in the chaplain corps. Um, three Iowans, uh, Fathers Thomas Barrett, Owen Monahan, uh, and Father uh, Aloysius Schmidt of Dubuque, all men were heroes, but the story of Father Schmidt is particularly compelling. Uh, he was the first among all the U.S. chaplains during World War II to give his life for his country. He died, again, December 7th, while ministering to shipmates on the USS Oklahoma in Pearl Harbor. Uh, not going to have time to go into all the details that would be so colorful here, but we know that um, he continued, uh, we know this from survivors, that during the uh, bombing, he continued to minister. Um, nine torpedoes, numerous bombs hit the Oklahoma. The ship rolled in 50 feet of water. Many of the 1,300 soldiers on board were trapped below deck. Some men were able to escape on their own. Rescue crews saved others. But 429 died as the Oklahoma sank to the bottom of the harbor. Schmidt might have escaped, but he wouldn't leave his men behind. Repeatedly, he pulled sailors from the wreck, conned them with prayer and personal blessings, and then died among his parishioners. And he was awarded the Silver Star and the Navy and Marine Corps Medals for Heroism. Dr. Ray Garendi. Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer. Type in child, self-esteem, search. Last time I looked... 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child, humility, search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child, you have to ask a question. Is this expert of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart to my children? How do we listen to God? Contrary to popular opinion that God only speaks to the privileged few, the Catholic Catechism tells us he communicates to all of us through our conscience. On our hearts, in our most secret core, God has inscribed the moral law. This law calls man to live and to do what is good and avoid evil. In the aloneness of the sanctuary that is our conscience, our Creator's voice echoes in our depths. When he listens to his conscience, says the Catechism, the prudent man can hear God speaking. Conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act about to be performed, 
is already performing or has already been performed. John Henry Cardinal Newman defined conscience as the law of the mind whereby God speaks to us behind a veil. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Ernest Hemingway uh, said in 1935, all American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. He said it's the best book we've had. All American writing comes from that. There was nothing before. And uh, it may be overstated, but the point is Huckleberry Finn is one of those quintessential uh, American novels. With me to take a look at Huck Finn through Catholic eyes. We've got uh, Luella D'Amico, Associate Professor of English and the Women's and Gender Studies Coordinator at the University of the Incarnate Word. She's the editor of the Girls Series Fiction and American Popular Culture and co-editor of Reading Transatlantic Girlhood in the Long 19th Century. And Dr. D'Amico, good to have you with me. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Good afternoon. Well, let's let's talk about this. First of all, the stature of the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. How how large does it loom in the history of American literature? I think, as you mentioned with the Hemingway quote, that it it really can't be overstated. When we think back to the great American novel, almost always you're going to have 
hooks in as one that is thrown out. Usually people will, if they haven't read it, and I think a lot of people have in their school, because it's still one of the most assigned books that there are. Mm-hmm. Banned, but also assigned. But they have least heard of it and maybe even have an opinion on it, as we know that sometimes people can on things that they haven't read. But mm-hmm. I do think that this idea of Huxman as a character and as a book, and to Mark Twain as, as a celebrity, is just part and parcel of American culture. Um. Tell me a little bit about uh, Mark Twain's intention in uh, authoring uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Did he have a clear idea? What was his process uh, for composing this? So he wrote Tom Sawyer, which is a more sort of quintessential children's novel. It's about his boyhood. He wrote that in 1876. And then he went back to his hometown shortly thereafter as kind of a celebration to say, well, you know, I'm here. I'm now an established author. And while he was on en route, he was on a steamboat, and he heard stories about slavery, and he began to rethink his childhood and what he had written in Tom Sawyer. And at this moment, he decided that he was going to write another children's book but that it was going to be focused specifically on what he saw as the biggest problem in the United States at the time, slavery. And so he began to work on Huck Finn, but it took him seven years, or a really biblical term, it took him seven years mm-hmm. to write it. He would go on and off and say, right, I, I know I want to say something, but this is a more difficult novel than a story about my boyhood. This is supposed to be a novel about the American experience and how are we confronting racism, especially because this was during the Reconstruction era, after the Civil War. What did we think about in our childhood growing up and what? how are we reckoning with that now? That's really the impetus for writing Huck Finn and his process. So the Civil War is over. We're in Reconstruction. Um, but he is aware that the question of race is is with us and uh it hasn't been purged from our uh, national consciousness so is is that is he trying to kind of drive um is he trying to drive a discussion about race absolutely at this point he's thinking we haven't solved this problem right the civil war may be over right. but racial tension still looms mm-hmm. politics and social issues are dividing the united states And I think in choosing a boy character in particular, it allows all of the readers, like children and adults alike, to go back and say, well, this is looking at it with new eyes. This is seeing this problem with new eyes and thinking about ourselves in different ways. Because, of course, throughout the novel, Huck Finn makes some really damning judgments on the adults who are around him. He begins to question their motives, even those who seem meanings. Hmm. Now, when he when he develops the character Jim, Jim's, uh, as I understand, is a runaway slave. And does Huck see himself as uh, Jim's savior? Is he is he the Jim's emancipator? Is he bringing Jim to safety? Is that is that how he sees his role? No, and I think that is the magic of 
Huck Finn, that it seems as if they're on this raft and they begin to have a, uh, Jim has escaped, Huck finds him, they begin to uh, to leave to leave their town together. Huck, Huck had had some family problems, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. and so they decide that they're that they're going to leave and they're going to escape. And at this point, Huck begins to really see Jim as a friend, and this is what makes this novel so different from so many others. So when you're thinking about Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harry Beecher Stowe, which really instigated the Civil War, that is about enslaved peoples and you don't see this idea of real true friendship mm-hmm. but there is this depth of friendship between huck and jim to the point that he begins to realize that he really cares about him he uh, he pulls a prank on him on the raft at one point and then he, he he pretends that huck was or he pretends that jim was dreaming and then jim said oh i thought i couldn't see you last night and huck said oh i you know you were dreaming and jim gets really upset about this this moment, he says, "I I feel like I'm going." It says, "Oh, I'm really sorry." And at this moment, he apologizes to Jim, hmm. and he realizes that he really cares about him. So you could read it that way. I mean, in the end, right? Huck helps Jim go to freedom, and that is what they are sort of after. But it's not necessarily that he's helping him to be his savior. It's that he's there. They're both escaping the same thing. They're escaping some problems. At their at their hometown, and they are leaving together. And Huck sees him as a friend, and in some ways, I would say a father figure. Jim really begins to look after him on the raft. Hmm, that's interesting because Huck has a, a pretty—I um, don't know how you would call, describe it—but he's got a, his dad is nobody he feels especially warm towards, but he's also ambivalent about his father, right? Yes, but he's also he's. 12 or 13. So he's ambivalent. Pap, his father, was a drunkard. He, we see him beating uh, Huck in the novel. He's not a good guy at all. Right. At the same time, if you're 12 or 13 and you are with your father, there is this level of respect that yeah. he has for yeah. his dad that's there. And he feels some sort of freedom hanging out with his gambling drunk father that he doesn't feel when he's back in society and staying with the widow Douglas and trying to be civilized, as they call it. So he's ambivalent, but also cares. I would say more, um, I would say he feels more complex, maybe, about his father. He feels kind of up and down, bittersweet. Okay. Um, 19th century America... Um, is is a Bible focused uh, society. Um, this is being written at a time where uh, people are beginning to question um, the origins of biblical books, and so there's uh, there's higher biblical criticism going on. What does the how does the Bible play into Huck Finn's uh, understanding of reality? So right at the start of Huck Finn, and I don't think this is pointed out by scholars or readers often, so we often gloss over these moments, it begins with Huck being taken in, he's an orphan, he's taken in, Douglas, and he's asked to pray. And he's told the story of Moses, which is why we often think about Huck as this sort of savior figure. Mm-hmm. But the widow, Douglas, is thinking that she, 
has taken in Huck, and she's seeing herself as a savior figure. So Twain has all of these layers that never quite match up exactly as you might think if it was a simple story. And so he's introduced the Bible, he's introduced to praying, but the widow Douglas doesn't seem to really care about Huck very much. She cares about posturing, I would say, about seeming as if she is a good person taking in Huck, but she doesn't seem to get to know him very well. But even though he has a a kind of complicated relationship with her, kind of like he does his father, he at night there are these moments where he's in bed and you can tell that he begins to pray. He begins to think about these Bible stories. He talks about Moses. And so throughout, Mark Twain is using all of these biblical references, even the idea of going down on a raft of escaping slavery, as we have in, in, the, in the biblical um, book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. All of that is embedded within the Twain story. It really is what I think of as an American allegory of, of the Moses story. But it doesn't, right, we want it to line up within Huck being the Savior, and it seems like it does, but I think Twain makes that really complicated, because in some, maybe Jim, because he's the father, that you know, Pap wasn't, that Huck's father wasn't. Maybe he's the Savior. It's really, it's, it's pretty ambiguous. Yeah. No. At at one point, uh, he has to decide if he's going to turn Huck in as a runaway slave, and this provokes a crisis for him. Tell me about that. This, I think, is the the pivotal moment of the book. Uh, He he has to make this decision, do I turn Jim in? And he thinks, he's been led to think throughout his life, if I turn Jim in, then that is the right thing to do. Jim is an enslaved person of the widow Douglas who had taken in Huck. And he doesn't hate the widow Douglas. He just doesn't feel very at home with her. And he knows that she seems to be a good person. She prays with him. She's teaching the Bible to him. But she also has Jim as a slave. So he thinks, well, maybe the right thing to do is to turn Jim back in. But then he sits alone again at night and he he basically prays. There's a, a great illustrator that he chose just for his book, in particular, E.W. Kimball. And if you see the illustration next to the passage when Huck's making his decision, it's Huck sitting there with his hands in his lap, and he says, it looks like, it looks like his hands are folded and he's praying, and he says, I'm thinking about Jim. And it is this moment as we're thinking about Jesuit prayer, a contemplative prayer. He, dreams of Jim, he thinks about him, and then he decides that I'm not going to turn him in. I've sort of prayed on it and decided that's not the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, I wish we had more time, uh, Dr. D'Amico. Uh We'll talk again, though. This is really helpful. I enjoyed uh, taking a look at these uh, novels through Catholic eyes. Thank you. Yeah. I enjoyed it, too. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. 
Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar, with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to discuss what happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent. When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. St. John Bosco taught his followers that it wasn't enough to stop their students' bad behavior. Good discipline teaches children to want to make choices that please the Lord. If your child is behaving badly, chances are they either don't know how to meet a particular need appropriately, or they don't know how to apply the lessons you've taught them to a new, challenging situation. To practice good discipleship discipline, take a moment to find out what your child was trying to do by acting that way. Then teach them healthier, godlier ways to meet that need. Taking this approach will help your kids know that they can count on you to help them be their best when they're feeling and acting their worst. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Well, we have coming up on Sunday the uh, opening to the Gospel of Mark. Um, 
chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and we're going to be joined by Peggy Stanton, who's been leading us in reflections on the Gospel readings for the following Sunday. And Peggy, you know, is the author of From the White House to the White Cross, the wonderful memoir, which I strongly recommend. She's a dame of the Order of Malta and was ABC News' first female Washington correspondent. While she's hosted many programs on Ave Maria Radio, uh, the most enduring has been the Malta Minute with the Catechism, which has now been turned into uh, a book which is getting a great deal of attention. It's called The Order of Malta, Minutes with the Catechism. And Peggy, I hear that uh, they're finally getting international uh, distribution here. Right, yeah, and it's interesting the places it's going to, India, Nigeria, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Burma, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. Wow. Did you have any idea that was going to happen when you started this project? (laughs) Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, when when I first started writing those reflections, I didn't think it was coming out of any place but my little chapel in my home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then of course it went to it, it's thanks to Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan is where it all started. Yeah. Uh you, you know, the Order of Malta wanted a, a a minute um spiritual reflection and I suggested the catechism and then the most amazing thing Al is that all those reflections without any um, intent on my part all worked out to be between 50 and 60 seconds. <laughs> That's so, great. <laughs> yeah, so I I think I don't get any credit. I think it's all the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's turn to another document here, which uh, we attribute to the Holy Spirit. Much more important, yeah. <laughs> and that is the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Let me read from the first eight chapters of chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People of the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He fed on locusts and wild honey, and this is what he proclaimed. One mightier than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and that's coming up on Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, John the Baptist is the patron saint of the Order of Malta. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, and uh, he also was the patron saint of uh, the thing that we did for many years called the Kids for Peace yes. pilgrimage. Yes, yes, okay. <clears throat> so he's kind of dear to my heart. <laughs> Um, the uh, I, what I thought we'd do, Al, is I would do um, not one of my synopsis, but the synopsis that the Didache Bible mm-hmm. um, did on this, and then 
we move into the paragraphs from which they drew their synopsis. Okay. We delve in a little bit deeper. So the Didache sums it up saying the first words of Mark unequivocally identify Jesus as the Son of God and as the Messiah foretold by the prophets. Christ is that good news or gospel from God the Father since it is through his passion, death, and resurrection we are redeemed. This good news is entrusted to the church to be announced to all people. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the preacher in the wilderness calling people to prepare the way for their Savior. And John is considered the last and greatest of the prophets. His austere life of prayer and penance made him a strong witness to the Lord's coming. John, however, considered himself unworthy even to be associated with the Messiah. Although John's baptism was of repentance rather than sacramental, it did call people to conversion and pointed to the definitive baptism from Christ, which would forgive sin through the Holy Spirit. The one um, thing that strikes me is before we move into these paragraphs is I've always wondered what drew people to go out to the desert to see this man dressed in camel hair and mm, leather belt, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because he, you see, was it merely that the message he was proclaiming got around all of the countryside and people wanted to go out and hear that? Yeah, I, you know, it's a good question. Uh, no doubt there's the, there's the, uh, there's a messianic expectation that mm -hmm. uh, Elijah will precede uh, right. the Messiah, mm -hmm. and he is uh, dressed in a kind of uh, gear that draws up the prophets. Um, and I think another thing, too, that we, we often forget, and that is that uh, there are always a lot of dissatisfied people with institutional religion. Mm -hmm. And the Pharisees had succeeded in having a very, uh, they were deeply pious, but they were also very politicized, mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. Sadducees as well. But the Pharisees had some fire to them. I mean, they were mm -hmm. quite serious about the faith. And I can imagine there were lots of people who were unhappy with the, the Pharisaic approach uh, to the faith. And John the Baptist was an alternative. He, he, he was somebody who was speaking a different word. Hmm. So I think they would, they would be maybe looking for somebody who could speak more authoritatively than the, um, the leaders of uh, Pharisaic Judaism. But, I, you know, you never know. Well, I'm saying hmm. I think those two things hit me, that the expectation mm -hmm. of Messiah... Mm -hmm. preceded by Elijah and then secondly the again there's always people who are dissatisfied with the current state mm -hmm. of institutionalized right. religion right. yeah hmm. well uh, and and it's coming home to me more and more um of this great expectation of the messiah that you know um really suffused all the people everyone who knew anything about scripture was having this 
expectation for years and years. I mean, it's amazing, really, when you think how long they were expecting it. So uh, someone making, if they got the word out that uh, we didn't have <laughs> CNN and Fox, but the word traveled, you know, he's saying the Messiah is coming. Mm-hmm. But anyway, paragraph 422 uh, says, but when the time had fully come, he quote, makes his quotation, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, I might add. Sure. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God has visited his people. He has fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham and his descendants. He acted far beyond all expectation. He has sent his own beloved son. Yeah. And that's something to think about, too, because they were expecting a Messiah, yeah. but they weren't expecting him, were they, to that he would be the Son of God? No. I don't think there's any indication that uh, those uh, Jews of the first century, often it's called those Jews of Second Temple Judaism, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any indication that they were expecting uh, an incarnate, uh, incarnation of God. Mm. Uh, they had messianic expectations. They thought God would act mm-hmm. in history, right. but I don't think they saw the promises to Israel to be fulfilled in the divine person mm-hmm. uh, of God Himself incarnate in Christ. Right. Yeah, you know, I think right. that was that was part of the scandal uh, of the early Christian preaching. Well, that's true. Yeah. You know why the religious leaders couldn't accept Him. Yeah. Uh, paragraph 515 says the Gospels were written by men who were among the first to have the faith and wanted to share it with others. Having known in faith who Jesus is, they could see and make others see the traces of his mystery in all his earthly life. From the swaddling clothes of his birth to the vinegar of his passion and the shroud of his resurrection, Everything in Jesus' life was a sign of his mystery. His deeds, miracles, and words all reveal that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Yeah. 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 His humanity appeared as sacrament, that is, the sign and instrument of his divinity and of the salvation he brings. What was visible in his earthly life leads to the invisible mystery of his divine sonship and redemptive mission. Then paragraph 571 says, The paschal mystery of Christ's cross and resurrection stands at the center of the good news, or the gospel, that the apostles and the church following them are to proclaim to the whole world. God's saving plan was accomplished once for all, by the redemptive death of his son, Jesus Christ. Paragraph 763 goes on to say, it was the son's task to accomplish the father's plan of salvation in the fullness of time. Its accomplishment was the reason for his being sent. The Lord Jesus inaugurated his church by preaching the good news That is, the coming of the reign of God, promised over the ages in the scriptures. 
To fulfill the Father's will, Christ ushered in the kingdom of heaven on earth. The church is the reign of Christ already present in mystery. In other words, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, we fully focus on that, that we are in the reign yeah. of Christ. Right? Yeah, it's, I mean, the new, the new creation is uh, being uh, established and built up within the old creation. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it, so there's new life, uh, even as the, uh, the old world is passing away, there's mm -hmm. new life emerging, and mm -hmm. we're to be bearing witness to that new life. That's the coming of the kingdom. We don't bring in the kingdom, but we bear witness to Christ, who is the king, who mm -hmm. will bring this kingdom in, in its fullness. And mm -hmm. uh, almost yeah. he, uh, w when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, mm -hmm. I mean, it's as if he's saying, you're looking at the kingdom of right. God. Right. I'm it. <laughs> yeah, I think right? that's I think that's exactly what's going on, yeah. and that's what that's what's difficult. There's a disconnect here, mm -hmm. uh, because while they see uh, a, a Jewish uh, preacher of certain height, certain weight, um, you know, yeah. uh, who you know walks around and has to, you know, I don't know what they did for showering back then, <laughs> but all <laughs> you know, you you don't say to yourself, "Oh, good heavens, if I were to do surgery on him." And I opened him up, and I looked at his liver. You wouldn't say, uh, you know, created by God Himself. You, you would. You would yeah. You, yeah. There'd be, he's a human. He is yeah. truly there, and to our senses, he is human. I know, and it, 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 you know, even how much we've been indoctrinated in that. It's still, when you start to think about it, it's so incredible to believe. Right. Well, I think I, I think that sometimes we have the problem looking at the church today, remembering that it is an extension of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's it's in its own way an extension of the incarnation. Right. And uh, it oftentimes doesn't look very impressive to us, mm -hmm. and we have to fall out of that and remember who it is that sent Jesus and what Jesus established when he was <laughs> here. Right, yeah. Wish we had point. more time on this. This was uh, really good, Peggy. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Al. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The AP is now saying that news people cannot refer to pregnancy resource centers as pregnancy resource centers or crisis pregnancy centers. They have to refer to them as anti-abortion centers because we're misleading the public by saying that they're offering resources, apparently. It is about consistently putting forth a culture of death to anything you want sexually, being extremely woke every time you turn around. This is more proof that all they care about is their own agenda. And they're doing this to their own demise. If you look at the ratings, for example, of CNN, if you look at the subscription rates, right, of various newspapers, whether it's online or still hard copy in, in print, continuing to decrease. And yet they do not care because it's about the agenda. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. 
Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and uh, we've got uh, more coming up, of course, in the next hour. Uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen joins us. We get caught up on world news uh, and the church around the world. There, there's a a lot of material, a lot of stories out there, and uh, looking forward to sharing that. And then we're going to talk about this uh, parents of an 11-year-old girl now demanding that a Colorado school district change its transgender policies after their daughter was instructed to share a bed with a biologically male. Uh, Very weird story. It's one we should be aware of. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Very good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for joining me. Before I go into uh, what we're going to be doing this next hour, let me just say uh, congratulations. Uh, I want to and send out congratulations to another member of the EWTN radio family, St. Jude Catholic Church in Mansfield, Texas. Nine years now with EWTN. Joel Rodriguez and everyone there at KYRE in Mansfield, Texas, doing great work. And we wanted to just, again, send out congratulations from all of us here at EWTN radio. Coming up in this hour, Dr. Matthew Bunsen joins us to look over a host of stories very colorful, wide-ranging stories around the world. And then we're also going to take time to look at this story in Colorado. Now, I'll just read the the summary statement. Parents of an 11-year-old girl are demanding that a Colorado school district change its transgender policies after their daughter was instructed to share a bed with a biologically male 11-year-old student who identifies as as a transgender girl during an overnight school trip. Now, if you're a parent of an 11-year-old girl, do you want her spending, sharing a bed with a biologically male student who identifies as transgender? I mean, that doesn't seem hard to realize how deeply offensive that is, how scandalous it could be. And I don't care if they're 11 years old. What I care about here is some adults 
carrying out a form of social engineering, which is going to play havoc with the uh, perceptions of children. This is an 11-year-old we're talking about. Anyways, we're going to talk this over with uh, legal counsel of the parents, Kate Anderson, coming up uh, later in this hour. And it's a story that I, if it is as it seems, all right, if the story is as it seems, this, this deserves national attention and national outrage. All right. But first, we're going to be talking to uh, Matthew Bunsen. And uh, right now, though, we'll kick it over to the news headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is Rave Maria Radio News for Thursday, December 7th. It's the Feast of St. Ambrose. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. The shooter who killed three people at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas on Wednesday was apparently a college professor. That man was armed with a pistol when he opened fire just before noon, and students scattered. NBC News' Jay Gray says the suspect was a 67-year-old career college professor who had unsuccessfully applied for a job at the school. The shooting started shortly before noon Wednesday on the fourth floor of the UNLV Business School building. In addition to those killed, one person was also critically injured. The gunman was killed by authorities. Israel's security cabinet is approving an increase in supplies in order to avoid humanitarian collapse in southern Gaza. This comes as Israel says its forces have encircled the home of the top Hamas leader, who is believed to be hiding underground. Today marks exactly two months since Hamas launched its October 7th attack against Israel. Today marks the 82nd anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. The attack by the Japanese military in Hawaii pushed the U.S. to enter World War II and declare war on Japan. Flags across the U.S. will be flown at half-staff today, and a commemoration ceremony will be held at Pearl Harbor National Memorial in Hawaii. And the richest Americans are richer than ever. New figures from the Federal Reserve show that the top 1% of earners in the U.S. own more wealth than all middle-class Americans combined. According to statistics, through the middle of this year, 26.5% of all household wealth belongs to those whose income puts them in the top 1%. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Let's take a look at the church around the world with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. He is vice president and editorial director of EWTN News, a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's authored or co-authored, edited more than 50 books, including the first English language biography of Pope Francis. And uh, again, he's... uh, Again, these are remarkable reference works that he's done. The Encyclopedia of Catholic History, the Pope Encyclopedia. Uh, you know, this takes this takes time, and it takes an attention to detail. Matthew, good to have you here. Uh, privilege to be with you, and a blessed Advent uh, to you and uh, everyone in the audience. Uh, thank you. I've often wondered the kind of patience it takes to put together an encyclopedia of Catholic history. Uh, it, it's a labor of love, for one thing, and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it's, I say that genuinely because we, we love the Church, yeah. all of us should, uh, but it's also um, 
a commitment to helping people to understand uh, more about the church. And I always laugh that if you read it from cover to cover, you're going to be great on everything that starts with A and then B and then C. So <laughs> hope those of might be a mystery until you get there. But uh, <laughs> I'm hoping at some point the, the first editions came out many, many years ago, and it's my, my hope to be able to update the Encyclopedia of Catholic History and a few of the other reference books that I've done over the years. Yeah. It, it's um, a question whether or not uh, there's the kind of market for reference books, but I think there really are. Um, we just have to embrace the, the technology today. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, but understand that the information that's in there is still valuable to people, and I think there's a lot of interest in it, based certainly on the, the responses I still get uh, from readers who find copies of them. Yeah. I, I find uh, reference works are still very helpful. I, it's, I like to have them right at my fingertips. I like to turn to them. So I'm all for uh, I I use yeah. the Internet quite a bit. I have a digital library system of 40,000 volumes, um, but I and I use it for various things. But still, when I'm sitting right. there at my desk, you know, I don't want, want to necessarily boot up the, the digital library system. I want to just reach over and read, read, an, read an article. In, in the, well, and it, it, it's a, a, a longer kind of sociological and even generational question, but uh, one of the things that is making a comeback printed books. And I can speak to that somewhat anecdotally. One of the things I like to do on uh, long international flights, the transatlantic flights in particular, is just to get up. You want to stretch your legs anyway. But then I do like a, a little census of who's reading what and how. Oh, yeah, flights. yeah. And I do find it very interesting that uh, novels, apparently, uh, paperback novels, hardcover novels, are increasingly popular. I would say, based on, again, my own experience of roaming the aisles, <laughs> uh, is that people really are finding them of great interest again. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a connection with the printed material. It's, it's mm-hmm. the printed word. Um, as, a, as a young kid, I was introduced by my mother uh, to The Lord of the Rings and the, the paperback uh, editions of the time, and it's one of those things that stays with you for the rest of your life. I can right. still smell the way that the books, the pages of the book, the way they smelled, and just the, the feel, uh, the, the tactile connection that you make to these books. And I think we're starting to see some of that come back as people consciously or not feel the need to disconnect uh, from the digital world, uh, but also to disconnect from the devices that seem now to be permanently attached to our hands. <laughs> to our brains. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, considering that the, the human species seems to be changing how it walks, uh, because we're, our gait is now much shorter, because we're, we're peering at, at phones and screens so that we're not taking long steps for fear of falling off a, yeah. down a stair or something like that. But th- those are the changes, and I think there's... Um, an unconscious rebellion, as I was saying, but I think also in, in some cases is a deliberate one. And that's where uh, the return of books uh, can be handy. And, and I yeah. think it's why, despite all of the, the digital reality that we have today and the importance of things like Kindle and others, uh, that Amazon and a variety of other booksellers, especially in airports and elsewhere, continue to thrive. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, let's uh, let's talk about a few things that are out there right now. Um, I protesters in 50 Spanish cities are praying the rosary today. Uh, can you t- or actually tomorrow, excuse me. Um, yes. Tell me what's going on there. Well, we have uh, uh, seen throughout uh, Spain uh, these reactions 
uh, to the what is, I think, one of the most aggressively progressive uh, Spanish regimes uh, that we've seen in some time. And uh, to the point now where we are also seeing an effort uh, to combat that uh, for what Catholics across Spain see uh, as really aggressive anti-religious fervor, mm-hmm. uh, especially on, on the part of this uh, the government. Now that the Spanish government questions the Spanish Socialist Workers Party, and uh, obviously tomorrow is the, the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, on December 8th, uh, and let's remember, too, that the Immaculate Conception is considered a patroness of Spain. That's right. So Spaniards across, as you noted, um, many, many cities, perhaps more than 50 cities, are going to be gathering to silently or very vocally uh, pray the rosary. Now, that has added uh, a great deal of tension uh, and attention, in part because uh, the government itself uh, was accused uh, last week and subsequent days that somehow the the rosary had been banned. Now, it's uh, technical. There, there are various aspects to what was actually being banned, but uh, essentially the, an organic law that impacts the ability of people to gather uh, provides a notice that public events have to be given to the government like 10 days in advance, and in some cases 24 hours. Hmm. But uh, in this case, uh, the rosary itself, the request to pray the rosary, uh, had been communicated to this government, and they had no response uh, that uh, usually means that, yes, you can go ahead with it, but we know that uh, the, the government, in this case, did eventually uh, give an order that declared that you could not recite the rosary. Now, that's almost un- unbelievable yeah. uh, that in a country with the the history of Spain, uh, A, uh, the magnificent Catholic Christian history of Spain, but then also the, the nightmares uh, that have been perpetrated in Spanish history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of the Spanish Civil War, for yep. example, uh, against the Church, against Catholics, the the wholesale massacre of priests. Murderous. It was murderous, yeah. Exactly. That um, such a rule would even be considered possible. But uh, the government certainly intended to persist with this, and, and that's where I think these protests are of some importance. Okay. Very good. Uh the we learned to that uh, in Nick, going to Nicaragua now uh, back uh, across the uh, Atlantic. Uh, we have the jailed Nicaraguan bishop Rolando Alvarez apparently now uh, willing to leave Nicaragua. Uh, do you know what's behind that? Yeah, uh, the reporting's been uh, done by uh, the, the pillar uh, to its credit. Now, by way of background. Uh, let's remember that uh, Bishop Rolando Alvarez, uh, who became such an important figure in Nicaragua uh, for resisting the oppressive qualities, the, the oppression of this regime by Daniel Ortega, and was subsequently arrested, uh, sentenced to 26 years uh, in prison uh, in what is generally considered uh, the worst prison in the whole of Nicaragua. Uh, it's called El Chipote. Uh, it's considered even one of the worst jails or prisons in the whole of Latin America. Wow. Uh, and 
there was a story earlier this year that he had refused uh, to accept a deal that hypothetically would have allowed him to be exiled to the United States, along with about another 200-plus political prisoners. What uh, the reporting now would seem to indicate, uh, we'll have to see how this plays out, of course, for various other forms of confirmation, is that uh, Bishop Alvarez may not actually have been given the opportunity to accept that deal, or that the deal itself may have been unclear at the time it was offered. Mm. Uh, Now, that it doesn't really change the fact that Bishop Alvarez is such an important figure in resistance to uh, the regime of Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. But what it does say is that it calls into question again, not that we really needed it, about the veracity and the good faith of this totalitarian Marxist regime uh, that is now in full control of the country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Hi, do you, do we know how ill he, uh, he is right now? Well, I think this is one of the concerns uh, that the pillar again is reporting, uh, that uh, his condition has deteriorated uh, significantly while he's in prison. And, of course, other various details have been emerging about uh, his overall treatment. And in this case, um, we could be looking at uh, a deteriorating medical condition for him. And while the government itself continues to insist that the the bishop uh, is receiving medical care and mail and visits from his family, uh, it's unclear whether or not, again, those statements are actually true. And if that's the case, then uh, as his health deteriorates, uh, it may be even more important for some kind of a negotiation to be achieved yeah. uh, that helps him to either leave the country or be released. I think the option most likely, if assuming that the regime itself doesn't simply want him dead, uh, is for him to be part of some sort of a negotiation that leads to his eventual exile. Uh, but the question is, does the Ortega regime want such a prominent figure uh, to be out there speaking so publicly uh, in defense of human rights right. at a time when they are under such vicious assault. Well, speaking of uh, ac- prison activity, uh, Bishop Joe Vasquez of the Diocese of Austin uh, celebrated Mass last week at the prison housing Texas's seven female death row inmates, five of whom have converted to the Catholic faith during their time awaiting execution. That's a remarkable That's right. story. Uh, it is. And what I find uh, so telling about these is the the beauty of uh, the the conversion stories that can happen uh, under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. And um, I I salute uh, the outreach that is always there. Uh, I think uh, the prison ministry that we have in the church is really quite essential now. Yes. No, I I agree. And I think we, we, these are stories we want to hear uh, because they don't normally capture public's attention They need to be uh, published, they need to be put forward, and I'm very happy that uh, Bishop Vasquez uh, let this story be known. So uh, hold it there, Matthew, we'll take a break and continue on the other side. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. How do we raise faithful kids? Well, the answer is surprising. Make the faith the source of the warmth in your home. 
50 years of research involving thousands of families has shown that the single most important way to increase the likelihood that children will own their faith as adults is to let them experience the practical difference their faith makes in their daily family lives. Kids who grow up in homes where the practice of their faith makes their households more peaceful, more loving, more joyful, are much more likely to practice their faith as adults. Why? Because for kids especially, faith is only real if they can see it being lived out at home and producing good fruit in their relationships at home. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchap, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. You know, maybe we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Maybe another way to ask that would be, how familiar are you with the Gospels? When I was living in D.C., I was on the plane, taking a late flight home, sitting next to a young girl. She was probably 16, 17. I had my collar on, and we got talking, and she said, um, somehow in the course of the conversation, she acknowledged that she was running away from home and was in the midst of uh, an awful lot of difficulties that were going on. Her story seemed to be remarkably akin to the story of the prodigal son, which we just heard this past Sunday at Mass, huh? And so I started to speak a little bit about that with her. And I said, you sound a little bit like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. And I said, are you not familiar with the story of the prodigal son? And she says, no, never heard it. And I just looked at her and I says, oh my goodness, are you in for a wonderful evening? Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. He was a pope, a saint, and a doctor of the church. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. Pope St. Gregory I the Great is one of only four popes honored as the Great. Among his many achievements was sending missionaries across northern Europe, especially St. Augustine of Canterbury, who brought Christ to the people of England. In a pun, Pope Gregory called the English people angels. He died in 604. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Good 
afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and with me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News. Looking at stories, uh, we try to get together once a week uh, to look over stories that are popping up around the world that are of importance uh, to the Catholic Church. And I see that the Board of Trustees at the University of Notre Dame has elected a new president, Father Robert Dowd, uh, once again, a congregation of Holy Cross priests. I think they've successfully had a congregation of Holy Cross priests from their beginning uh, as president. And um, tell me, what do you know? I mean, he, he's been on this program in the past discussing religious liberty issues on the continent of Africa. I met mm-hmm. him years ago when I was in Rome uh, for the Under Caesar Sword Conference. But um, our topic's always been fairly narrow, so I don't really know much more. Uh, about him. What can you tell me? Yeah, I think uh, one of the uh, the ways to describe uh, Father Dowden, that he will bring his own uh, unique experiences and talents, is I think, uh, as you note, uh, he is a member of the Congregation of the Holy Cross, as a Holy Cross priest, um, who is also an associate professor at Notre Dame. He's a Notre Dame grad, so mm. he has long-standing connection there. Um, but I think one of the ways you can describe this is that uh, he is a, a form of continuity, I think, with Father Jenkins. And what I mean by that is that uh, I think Notre Dame is always looking to have that stability mm-hmm. uh, in their leadership. And um, the the board itself, uh, in a statement, seemed to emphasize that, that uh, his efforts, of, I'm talking about Jenkins, is to position the university extremely well in every way. It says we want to build on those efforts. And again, as I say, informed by the Catholic mission, we will work together so that Notre Dame is an ever greater engine of insight, innovation, and impact. Uh, so again, as you note, um, he is somebody with uh, considerable experience in Africa. He had a, master, a master's degree in African study from UCLA, and ultimately a, a doctorate in political science in 2003. So he's been on the faculty since 2004. So he's been there through quite a bit, uh, almost 20 years now. Yeah. Uh, so I think he is certainly somebody who knows Notre Dame quite well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know, I mean, I, do you know anything about this uh, drag show that was supposed to be going on on the, the Notre Dame's campus? Do you, I just saw a headline on this, and I don't have an article in front of me, but I was curious if you know yes. anything about it. Well, this was um, part of a program, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, that they wanted to bring in um, a variety of, uh, let's just, shall we say, experiences. Mm. Uh, and uh, from that standpoint, I think there's been quite a bit of concern, along with uh, some of the pro-abortion activities that have taken uh, place there. I think the, the, the drag show itself uh, was in October, and a number of students, as I recall, really were very public uh, in their condemnation of uh, something like this. Uh, and it was part of a, a course that was taught, and uh, I think the, the class had a title something along the lines of What a Drag, Drag on Screen, uh, Variations and Meanings. So it was through the film, television, and theater program. Uh, this is all, all reported by the, the Notre Dame paper, the Irish Rover, which, of course, has uh, itself been uh, subject to uh, some hostility on the part of progressives because of some of their reporting, mm-hmm. uh, especially about, again, those pro-abortion activities that seem to be taking place there. Yeah. Uh, let's, Pope Francis, uh, 
uh, his had cardinal advisors who were hearing from two female professors on women's role in the church. Now, this is uh, how does this how does this play into this, this story line that's been developing with female theology professors uh, writing to Pope Francis and making their positions known on uh, women's issues in the church. Yeah, uh, this is uh, uh, this one really caught my attention in in part because uh, of the setting in which several uh, theology professors who are, are women uh, were in the presence of Pope Francis, but not just of Pope Francis. Uh, they were actually asked uh, to speak to Pope Francis's Council of Cardinals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a gathering, as as you know, Al, that has been here really from the start of Pope Francis's pontificate. Of this advisory board of cardinals, the number is called the, the C9. C9 first, yeah, and I went, right. then I went down to C6, and then uh, we're back to C9. Uh, but the significance, to my mind, is that this is something that Pope Francis seems to consider very important. Mm-hmm. And we know from the Holy See's press office, Salastampa, that in his meeting with them, uh, they discussed uh, the Council of Advisors uh, a number of topics. Uh, we know that obviously the Synod on Synodality was a topic. I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, but also what's going on, obviously, in the Holy Land and Gaza and, and the Ukraine. But, uh, and this is connected to the Synod, uh, as the press statement says, that the center of reflection was the theme of the role of women in the Church, which was something that uh, was much discussed at the Synod on Synodality. Mm -hmm. And then we had Pope Francis just a a few days ago talking about uh, the dangers of masculinizing the Church and listening to the voices of women. So in this case, uh, two theologians, uh, one is a sister Linda Pocher, um, and the other is Lucia Vantini. both from Verona, I believe, and both, I think, are significant in the sense that um, to have two women theologians, uh, Sister Linda Poker uh, works or teaches at the Pontifical Faculty of uh, Science of Education, uh, also, I believe, in Verona. And for them to be, or in Rome, but, but for them to be presenting to this Council of Cardinals, I think, is a significant development, just in the sense that they are now canvassing as much thought as possible from women theologians. Now, I know that uh, many would have immediate concern about, that's great, but what are they actually teaching? Yeah, yeah. And what are their positions on things? Uh, One of note uh, is... um, this doctor, Lucia Vantini, uh, who has doctorates in philosophy and also in uh, theology, uh, one from the uh, theological faculty from Padua, uh, the other from uh, University of Verona, and is an expert in moral philosophy and theoretical philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know exactly what the topics were uh, that they addressed, but I think overall it's Pope Francis' a continuing effort uh, to hear the voices of women uh, and to have them involved uh, in these discussions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so this, I'm, it just seems as though this is going to be an ongoing thing. Uh, but we do. Is this advocacy? Uh, do we know what their particular are there positions that they're advocating? Well, and that's uh, the interesting part because, as I mentioned, uh, the, the sister poker is. Uh, She's a Salesian of the Sisters of Don Bosco. She's a professor of Christology and Mariology. 
Uh, and in that sense, I think uh, the Vatican, we can pretty much only go on what the, the Vatican communique said, uh, that uh, the, the Council of Cardinals agreed about the need to listen, even and especially in individual Christian communities, to the feminine aspect of the Church, so that the processes of reflection and decision-making uh, can yeah. enjoy, as they describe, the irreplaceable contribution of women. Yeah. And that, that's certainly consistent with what Pope Francis has been saying for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and, and I know he likes this, go, he likes this uh, Marian uh, principle of the Church and the Petrine principle of the Church that uh, uh, Baltazar wrote about. Uh, that's right. And, so, and that was a reflection that the Council heard from—it was a paper— uh, from uh, Sister Poker. Okay. Okay. So that's what so she was... She's not an unknown quantity gotcha. uh, to to this council. Well, let me, let me switch over uh, to Gaza. Uh, we forget in all of our discussion that there is a Roman Catholic Church in Gaza. There's only one, apparently. Uh, it's got to be difficult times for them. And uh, uh, what, do you, what, what, are, what can you tell us about things there? Yeah, uh, as you can imagine, the situation for the, the parish is Holy Family Parish, which is, uh, as you note, uh, exactly right, Al, that this is the only Catholic or Roman Catholic uh, church in Gaza. And we are uh, in need of as many updates as we can possibly have, because overall there are about 1,500 or so Catholics uh, living in Gaza, and that number, now, of course, is much reduced um, because of displacement, and we're obviously always concerned about uh, the plight of everyone who's caught up in the fighting that's going on there. Uh, we know that uh, this parish has become something of a an important point for Christians, but also just civilians caught up in this because of the, the horrendous terrorist attack by Hamas on Israel two months ago Two today, months ago, yeah. And the Israeli response. So hundreds of individuals now have taken refuge, civilians, uh, in the parish. Now, for by way of knowing where it is, it's on the northern end of the Gaza Strip. So it's been really in the forefront of uh, what has been a, a battleground now uh, for some weeks. Mm -hmm. The pastor there is Father Gabriel Romanelli, uh, and he has from time to time been able to uh, give some interviews and to get word out. Uh, I think he's been there in Gaza for about six years and was able then to communicate directly with uh, the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem, which is then uh, posting these interviews. So as you can imagine, uh, information uh, is at a premium and, and some of the technology is, is difficult. Yeah, yeah. But what we're seeing in this um, in this interview is the, the levels of destruction that they're seeing uh, and the impact uh, that the fighting has had uh, on uh, both the Gaza Christian community writ large, Catholics in particular, but also the Orthodox uh, that uh, also has a presence uh, in Gaza itself. Okay. Uh, also, can you tell me anything about uh, this majority Christian state in India. I was not aware there was a majority Christian state uh, in India, but apparently it's a place for refugees now uh, to escape ethnic infighting there. Yeah, uh, what we're seeing more and more uh, is uh, 
the persecution of Christians around the world continues, and I would send everyone uh, for these and almost all of the stories that we talked about today. It's either the Catholic News Agency or National Catholic Register, ncregister.com. Uh, there's a, a reporter by the name of Anto Akara. Uh, I have the privilege of, of knowing him a little bit. Mm. Uh, has been one of those voices who's been trying to get these stories out over the years yeah. uh, as the world just doesn't have a lot of interest. But in this case, you're absolutely right that thousands of Christians are trying to start a new life after being displaced by ethnic conflict in India. Well, Matthew, thanks. I wish we had more time, but uh, I do appreciate you taking time with us, and uh, Lord willing, we'll talk again soon. Amen. Be safe. God bless. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, we will have follow-up on all the conversation that we had with Matthew in the Cresta Guest Archive. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mother Angelica said that the essence of evangelization is to tell everyone that Jesus loves you. Matt Frad says that it is one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Are we so full of the things of the world that we can't hear or receive the gifts that God is giving to us? In Isaiah, we hear, The Lord delights in you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are precious in my eyes, and I love you. Well, we often don't want to hear that, and in the Gospel of Matthew, it hits us over the head even more that we're invited to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is king, and he's come to establish his kingdom. The Beatitudes are the eight roads to God. They lead us with his gifts of the Holy Spirit to become the new person in Christ who will find happiness and bring that happiness to others. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. How can we be sure our conscience is guiding us rightly? 
the Catholic Catechism states that in order to make correct moral judgments, we must have a well-formed conscience, one that is upright, truthful, and formulates its judgments according to reason and conforms them to the true good willed by the wisdom of the Creator. In order to avoid the trap of negative influences and the desire to prefer our own judgments, we must educate our conscience. The Catechism asserts that prudent education teaches virtue and guarantees freedom and engenders peace of heart. What are the ingredients of this educational stew? The Word of God, which we absorb through faith and prayer and an examination of conscience before the Lord's cross. Though our modern world sometimes makes discernment difficult, a well-formed conscience helps us see what is right and choose what is the will of God as expressed in divine law. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Parents of an 11-year-old girl are demanding that Colorado School District change its transgender policies after their daughter was instructed uh, to share a bed with a biologically male 11-year-old student who identifies as a transgender girl. Uh, This was during an overnight school trip. Uh, I want to make sure we get the facts down straight, and I'm delighted to have with me uh, legal counsel for the uh, girl and her family, uh, Kate Anderson. Kate is senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, where she's the director of the Center for Parental Rights. Since joining the ADF in 2015, she's focused on protecting the conscience rights of individuals being unjustly compelled to forfeit their beliefs under threat of government retaliation heavy fines, or other punishments. She's admitted to the state bars of Arizona and Washington, the U.S. Supreme Court, and several federal district and appellate courts. And, Kate, good to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Talk to me about the facts here. Uh, I mean, on, on the face of it, you know, this is one of the things that really makes your blood, makes my blood boil. Uh, but maybe I, don't know the, maybe I don't know the details. So explain to me exactly what happened here. Yeah, it is pretty much what you said. Um, the Joe and Serena Wales, uh, their daughter, fifth grader, 11 years old, went on a trip to Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. Um, on the first night of that trip, she found out from the student in her room that she was supposed to be sleeping in the same bed with a student who is biologically male but identifies as a girl. And she wasn't told ahead of time. Her parents weren't told ahead of time. She ended up going into the bathroom, hiding, calling her dad, Mm -hmm. calling her mom, trying to figure out how to get out of this uncomfortable situation that she was placed in. Yeah. Um, So... Was there any opt-out provision here? I mean, this was completely sprung on her? It was completely sprung on her. Um, She did advocate for herself. Uh, Her parents are really proud of her, but she um, spoke to her chaperones. It took her a couple of times to work her way around to get a real accommodation, but then they did move two of the girls in her room, split them up so that she was just in a room with another student who is a girl. Yeah. Um, And... Uh, but they didn't tell them ahead of time. So she had to work that out on the front end and when, or on the back end. And then when they got home, uh, her parents found out that this was all pursuant to Jefferson County policy. It's district policy to room students on overnight trips based on their gender identity, not their biological sex, and not to provide an opt-out anywhere in that policy. Well, first of all, she's got to be 
quite a, a courageous uh, young lady to mm-hmm. actually act as her advocate yes. in a situation like that. That takes that takes some that takes some uh, footing. Uh, so good for her. The you know on the face of this, I would think this would be offensive uh, to parents all over the United States, and um, I, I'm just curious. This is this being how is this being handled? I mean, are they backing? Are they revising their policy as a result of this? Well, we hope they will. We sent a letter on Monday asking the school district to reconsider this policy, ensure that all parents know about the policy and have the opportunity before an overnight trip to make the best decisions for their kids, opt out of this kind of a policy, um, because that's best for all parents and all kids so that their privacy can be respected. But we have not yet heard from the district. My hope is that this is relatively obvious that it's best for all kids involved if decisions like this are made on the front end before the kids are in a hotel room the night, the first night of a trip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would think that a, a sizable percentage of parents would have difficulty with this policy as it stands. I, I don't know of any surveys or studies that would indicate that. That's just my own guess uh, from being a parent myself and knowing lots of parents. Um, I think they would... Most parents would want to know what uh, this policy is up front, as you say, and then mm-hmm. would want to at least, they would recognize the wisdom of an opt-out provision, at least. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder, I wonder. Yeah, that's this, a hope. Yeah, no, I, and I wonder, how does this, how does this, how is this configured to other uh, policies or priorities? of the Jefferson County Public Schools there uh, in Colorado. In other words, is this tied to policies, um, you know, that, that are tr- trying to engineer a changing of student attitudes? Uh, is this part of a larger uh, plan that uh, public school leaders have uh, to change attitudes on this question of uh, transgenderism? Well, this policy is part of the Jefferson County policies pertaining to students who are struggling with their gender identity, but it is at odds with other policies in the district that make it very clear that the Jefferson County School wants to work with parents, wants to have honest and open communication Mm -hmm. with parents and work together for the betterment of all students. And yet here they're hiding information from parents that really specifically implicates the privacy of young girls. And so uh, that transparency is just needed here. Um, Anytime the school district is hiding information from parents, all parents should be pretty concerned about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes you wonder, too, again, how, how corporate decisions are made like this why somebody in the process there didn't say, hey, wait a minute, uh, have we considered how this is going to play out uh, with parents who are going to be opposed uh, to this? I, I'm just surprised. It just sounds really ham-fisted and clumsy. Uh, do you know if there's been any other complaints of this sort? 
Uh, we don't know, but I'm not sure that the district would ever let people publicly know uh, how many times this has come up. Mm-hmm. I know that there are other parents since we've uh, sent this letter that have voiced concerned about the outdoor lab overnight trips that are done regularly in the school. So it's not just this D.C. Philadelphia trip, but there's a number of trips that happen in overnight stays that parents are really concerned about um, this this policy. And um, it seems short-sighted to me because it doesn't respect the privacy of all students, and it really isn't good for any students because if students are trying to navigate this in real time the first night of a trip, they're not really able to protect the privacy of any student, and it would make every student in that room uncomfortable and in an odd situation. Yeah. Uh, but dealing with things on the front end, you would be able to eliminate that and really respect all students more fully. Yeah, I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no reason to think that the 11-year-old uh, biologically male student there who uh, identifies as transgender, there's no reason to believe that... Um, he was delighted with the situation either. I mean, nobody wants to be a surprise uh, to their roommate uh, all of a mm-hmm. sudden, you know? So uh, but in both yeah. students' uh, concerns have to be uh, weighed here. When did this first get uh, become a public issue? Uh, well, we sent our letter on Monday. Okay. The trip happened back in June, though mm-hmm. so there was some conversation about it at the time, but we sent our letter to the school district this Monday, and it's been definitely a conversation in Jefferson okay. County since then. Okay. So this is getting the public attention. That's good. And uh, mm-hmm. do you have any uh, timeline here? Uh, I realize that uh, you kind of have to wait for them to respond, but uh, what what would be a, what would be a reasonable uh, amount of waiting time for them to respond? Well, we... In our letter, we asked the school district to respond to us by December 18th. Okay. So we gave them about three weeks to respond, and they have a board meeting in between. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, Hopefully we'll see this. Uh, I hope we can call on you again. I hope this gets cleared up. But uh, I'd like to talk to you again uh, just to see how it gets cleared up, because I think it's important. And I know uh, ADF has been at the the forefront of uh, taking on these challenges and actually uh, try to make sure that uh, it's not just a reactive force, but uh, it's a force Mm -hmm. that's trying to make sure that there's good sound policy for everybody here. Yes. Yes, I'd be happy to talk with you again. All right. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Kate Anderson is Senior Counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. She's the Director of the Center for Parental Rights. Uh, And... You know, this is one of those situations where you really you back up and you say, "How? Who didn't get this? Who 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 thought this was a good idea?" You know, even even if you are, even if you've bought into uh, what is called commonly called transgender ideology, even if you bought into that, and you would think you'd have to take into account the comfort level of students who haven't necessarily bought into it and and parents who haven't necessarily bought into it. And if you're talking about you know, living in a, a culture in which we accept one another with all of our differences, you don't want to spring 
those differences uh, on people, especially when you're talking about 11-year-old kids. You know, this is not a college-age uh, young people. I think that 11-year-old uh, young lady who who decided to be her own advocate in this situation is pretty pretty remarkable. And her parents ought to be uh, quite proud of the way that she acquitted herself uh, in this situation. A lot of strange things happen. Um, you know, the, I'll, let me go back to a, another strange thing that happened a while back, and that is it came up again because uh, Senator Josh Howley was uh, giving a tough time to FBI Director Christopher Wray. Uh, this was yesterday. Uh, there was the release of the report that um, found that the agency did some investigation into traditional Catholics, and it was more expansive than FBI officials had previously claimed. Now, uh, Hawley uh, told Ray that, now we know that, in fact, FBI agents did approach a priest and a choir director to ask them to inform on parishioners. Now, this this goes back to the idea that somehow uh, Catholic, Catholic parents, more traditional Catholic parents, were somehow uh, dangerous. Um, you know, Ray argued with Hawley, saying that he, you know, Hawley was not getting things straight. He was conflating different issues here. But uh, there was a memo that uh, Richmond FBI uh, office had, you know, rescinded the memo. But there was a separate investigation into a man who was amassing Molotov cocktails and making threats. And somehow Catholics were considered... Uh, you know, a suspect group in all this, or at least traditional Catholics were considered a suspect group. Now, yeah, okay, it could be that you have an overly zealous person in the FBI. You know, this thing needs to be challenged and and, and worked out. But just ask yourself, who who in the process, you know, in, in the hierarchy there, those who are overseeing this office, who are overseeing this policy, or this this uh, probe, don't you don't you think somebody would have stood up and said, you know, um, that doesn't sound like Catholics. I know. Uh, if you're going to say this, you really better have this thing nailed down, because if this gets goes public, everybody's going to be embarrassed here, and we're going to sound like we're going to sound disconnected from reality. Anyways, that, we'll have a story posted for you in the Crested Guest Archives on this. It's important for us not to lose our balance with some of these things, but we ought to be informed. I'm Al Creston. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. ...teaches that Jesus Christ is literally and wholly present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. In the Bread of Life discourse documented in John chapter 6, Jesus states that He is the bread of life and that His flesh is true food and His blood true drink. The Jews were scandalized in verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus does not back down, but reiterates this teaching four more times over the next four verses. Many left in verse 66 because this teaching was truly difficult. 
But at no point does Jesus water down his teaching and call them back. No, he allows them to leave, and even questions his 12 apostles if they too wish to leave. Jesus intended to be understood literally, and the Jews, apostles, and the Catholic Church absolutely take him at his word. Examining the truth of the Catholic faith, this is faithforensics.org. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Here's another story about an 11-year-old. Again, another, in this case, a boy who, uh, Argentine boy, uh, made special effort to walk about seven miles on muddy roads to receive the Sacrament of Confirmation. This is Maximiliano uh, Pavalao, 11 years old, lives with his parents and four siblings in a small town in Buenos Aires province. And, um, you know, he's been preparing to receive the Sacrament of Confirmation, which was scheduled for November 11th. Uh, And, in fact, he had to walk seven miles to get there. The news got to... Pope Francis, who sent him a special blessing as a result. But again, uh, we should keep in mind that, you know, 11-year-olds can be agents for their own good. And we have this one story of the girl who uh, had to stand up uh, to protect herself, or, you know, to stand up for her rights in this uh, transgender situation. And here we have another 11-year-old willing to walk seven miles through the mud and weather to receive the sacrament of confirmation. Praise Christ God. In the afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.